Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Straight to the Mat with your host, Ravishing Rick and... The Cerebral Analyst, Dunness. Alright, so today we have kind of a... Well, I guess every episode is a special episode, right? I mean, it's our hard work, blood, sweat, tears, time, effort, research. So, you know what? Every episode is fucking special. But today's episode <laughs> is, uh, is special because... Uh, you know, this is actually to be taken lead by none other than the, the three analyst. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand the reins over to you, friend. Not the Roman reins, but the reins. So handing over the hounds of justice. Okay, so I call this the pipe episode, which, technically straightforward, the pipe episode will be discussing wrestling pipe bombs, present, past. In, our, in, in the wrestling industry. So, recently, Ronda Rousey has put a video up on YouTube and uh, other social media outlets. She was pretty much bashing wrestling itself. Saying that, she, you know, that wrestling is fake, it's all storyline, that in, you know, real life she could kick the shit out of Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair. And all the other girls in the... Locker room, all the ladies in the locker room, I should say, stand corrected. You're absolutely, and it, it brought to my attention, you know, nine out of ten is definitely a work. You know, people are like, oh my god, it's so real. Like, she's bashing the industry. How could she do this? And you know, she's part of the company. What does Vince have to think about this? Come on, Vince is a fucking master mind. He's a genius when it comes to stuff like this, especially now with WrestleMania coming in a couple weeks. Definitely gotta hype the shit up, hype the product to get it to all outlets, ESPN, you know, Bleacher Report, and so on. You gotta get eyes. You gotta get eyes, and not to interrupt, but uh, I mean, look, I think, and I agree with you. I think this is a hell of work. But what's interesting about this this promo is that um, well, I call it a promo because I, I think that's exactly what it is, even if it was it off is. the cuff. Is that Paul Heyman's had some hands in this whole Becky Ronda feud, right? You know, wrestling is infamous for works that seem to be shoots, right? Yes. So I honestly think that, I mean, look, I think this is the best thing for Ronda. I, I definitely enjoy Ronda's ring work. Do I necessarily enjoy her as a face? Like, Yes and no, but I prefer her as a heel because Ronda is indestructible, right? Yes. And like, how can you really get, how can you really get behind someone who you know is always gonna win? I can get behind someone that I know is always gonna kick someone's ass because they are an ass kicker, and I generally associate ass kicking and ass kickers with like bad, bad people. And Ronda Rousey is one of the baddest women on the planet. Bar none. Well, you you saw what she did in UFC. You definitely tell that she means business. And coming to WWE, you knew she would bring a different style to the women's division. And I like this heel turn. It, she needed it, you know, playing the you know the face you know throughout the whole year, and getting booed, and pretty much reminding me of John Cena. Yeah. Yeah, uh, even Roman Reigns, right? I mean, look, it's kind of like a mixed crowd. We've been at live events with Ronda there, mm-hmm. you know? 
and it, it is a mixed reaction. Now, the thing the thing about that mixed reaction is, I think there are a lot of more cheers than there are boos. I think as of late, though, there have been more boos than cheers, right? But still, uh, the ratio isn't so like out of proportion that you know one is more like one one of them is you know drowns out the other, right? And I think that you know the logical step is that look the you to beat Ronda as a face to me doesn't work, but to beat Ronda as a heel I think is more plausible. You know what I mean? Because you know. The end of the day, every bad guy ends up getting his or hers, right? And you know, I, I think it's the logical step, and I think the way Rhonda approached it and the way she's doing it is great because this is probably going to be her best mic work. You know, let her say what she needs to say. You know, and and even if maybe like a guy like Paul Heyman's there tinkering around, he's it's probably her own words. He's just giving her direction. Well, she's pretty much being herself now, from what I've noticed. We all know she's not great on the mic. Um, even from the UFC days, you know, post-interviews, pre-interviews, press conferences. But I, I, I want to I stop you there. And one of the things that I don't like, I guess, is that, look, Ronda Rousey did have a speech, you know, impediment and, the, you know, developmental issues with her speech, right? Understand. So it was delayed. And, you know... Uh, she to this day still has issues with that and look she overcomes it and she does what she does she's been in movies you know she's in the WWE so I think people need to like stop being such fucking assholes about it and need to like be like yo this bitch is bad and you know what she's overcome lots of shit especially you know uh, uh, you know something as a development development of, of the sp- of speech like right? you have right now speech. yeah like I'm having it right now exactly yeah <laughs> you asshole yeah um, but yeah, but you know, so, so, I'm sorry. No, that, I, that, I understand where you're coming that's what from. That's I'm just saying. I mean, people need to back off with her mic work, you know? But honestly, if, if that was, a, if that is the case, which, you know, I, I know about the situation with her 100%, maybe she don't even have to talk in the mic. There's great wrestlers out there that don't even need the mic. Just with their skills alone, it shows, you know... They could work. Remember back in the day, Goldberg, he didn't speak. And well, he was, it, was, it was all action with him, yeah, right? Yeah, it was all action. And she could definitely do action. And a who's next. Exactly. Probably like, what, the one-liners pretty much? And then yeah. showboat a little bit in the entrance, you know, spit, come in, and then do like, what, like two-minute matches? Yeah. And go back. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And I could see that with Ronda Rousey. She could definitely... Do what she has to do in the ring. Let her actions speak for her. I agree. Let's talk about Ronda Rousey's shoot leading to our episode, which is we're going to discuss some of the infamous pipe bombs in wrestling, past and present. So let's start off with CM Punk, which in my opinion... Is one of the best ones out there that was done creatively and it propelled his career much, much farther than anybody thought. I agree. Uh, this one stands out a lot because CM Punk's mic skills 
go without like comparison. I don't really think many people can hold a candle to him on the mic. And whenever he was on the mic, it never seemed forced. It always seemed natural. And I'm sure they probably scripted some. Then maybe they put him onto bullet points. And then maybe he just went off the cuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, it always seemed like, you know, it was just fluent. It was just him just doing a shoot every time. Yeah. Yeah. Whether whether he was a face or a heel. But I, I, I beg to argue... My opinion is that his best mic work was always as a heel. Always. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when they first started, he was, you know, the straight edge, uh, ECW guy. And, yeah, it was cool. I agree. But you're right. I definitely agree 100%. His best work was when he was a heel. And it led him to become a face. But nowadays, you know, even a heel is a face in some people's eyes. Yeah. And it works. Yeah. I mean, for me, the thing with CM Punk was I always preferred him as a heel, not so much as a face, because I think just naturally, he just seems like a guy people despise and don't like. Um, you know, and he was like always so full of himself, but also it was like he always like backed it up, right? I mean, look, in a real sh- legit shoot fight, would CM Punk be able to take on The Rock? I guess it depends. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, once he did his MMA training, then maybe the story changes a little. But you know what I mean? CM Punk was always kind of like the scrappy underdog to a degree, you know. But the best work he did, and it didn't matter how big you were, you know, in comparison to him, he can always bring you down to like microscopic levels and size the minute he started using his mic skills because like even his vocabulary was like on another level you know what i mean mm-hmm. and, and the way he used his words and he expressed himself the way he emoted with his face i mean all of that just gave to the you know it, it was all part of the presentation the package you know the tattoos you know when he went to the slick back short hair like all those things like just factored in right just he had this swag to him you know he needed it he definitely needed that to break out from his previous, you know, character. To be honest with you, I never thought of him as a character. It was just him being himself. But um, him on the mic, it, it reminded me of um, that, like that bully, like that would dissect you and like make you cry. Not to say that you know someone made me cry, but I'm just saying in, in, in general. Like in real life, he would he would definitely make me cry. I think. Yeah, like he could just say things, and you you won't have no comeback because it's just how it's, it's impossible. But you know, with CM Punk, his infamous pipe bomb has to be the one on the episode of Raw on June twenty seventh, when uh, he uh, announced that his contract was coming up and he was proclaiming himself as the best in the world and that he's better than the WWE and he's, at the time, better than the face of the company, John Cena, which at the time was the WWE champion. And the whole storyline is at the time was CM Punk was challenging John Cena for the WWE championship with... The uh, extra, you know, stipulation or 
it's a uh, sizzle that his contract was coming up the yeah. same night that, that the main event happen. was gonna happen. And at first, I thought this was like real. I'm like, okay, his contract is coming because technically his contract was coming up. Um, the way they played it out that his that night of Money in the Bank mm-hmm. pay per view, his contract was expired at midnight. I was saying, okay, if he wins the belt, what's going to happen? If he doesn't win the belt, that'd be good. But it led to the fact that this propelled his career, like, 100%. Uh, Yeah, I mean, definitely there was a lot of hype surrounding this match because, all right, you always kind of got little hints that the WWE was never fully behind CM Punk, and CM Punk had a lot of critics. And then also CM Punk was very critical of the WWE product, right? Yes. Uh, so, you know, you knew he wasn't happy, you know, to, to a degree. You know, you knew some people in the back, he wasn't there, you know, he wasn't the, the teacher's pet, right, so to speak. He played by his own rules and Triple H didn't like that. Yeah, you know, and and again, this is what hearsay, right? We're not saying that we know this, we're not in the, you know, industry like that and, you know... We don't know the backstories. This is what you hear, so you know you kind of make little inferences, right? Uh, but yeah, that that was a little kind of you know cherry on top with this match. Was this was potentially his last match? And look, we've seen that happen, right? Yes. And back in the day, like when Razor left and Diesel left, I didn't know they were going to WCW. Well, I didn't know either, and I think most of the fans at that time didn't know that they were leaving. Even though, looking back at it, at documentaries and stuff like that, I remember that the AOL was just starting up around that time, like late 95, early 96, and there was like maybe a couple of fans that, you know, through AOL knew that they were going to WCW, because I remember that last show they had at the Garden, uh, they were shouting to Kevin Nash and uh, Scott Hall that they sold out. Well, you know what's funny about that is, uh, and I've made note in previous episodes where I talked to you about the curtain call. I was there at Mass Square Garden when that happened. I didn't realize what was going on when I saw the curtain call. I didn't know that these guys were leaving. After that, I just didn't see them on TV anymore, you know? But I do remember that these guys were losing matches on their way out. Well, Razor, I know he had a couple IC title matches. Um... I don't know who was the IC champ at the time. Goldust, I believe. And Probably Goldust. Diesel was still working with Sean. Yeah. As Sean was the world he, champion at the time. And he did Mania with Taker. Yes. Which he lost as well. Yeah, and Razor was... I don't think Razor was part of that Mania, right? Mm, not to my yeah, recollection. Yeah, I don't know. Not to my recollection. It was just like Diesel, and Diesel did the job to the Taker. Yes. But, um... They didn't, they didn't leave in no shoot interview, so let's leave that aside. Yeah, another topic for another episode. Yeah. Although it does beg to ask the question of if they did leave on a shoot video, uh, shoot video, I'm sorry, a shoot interview, how would that sound like, right? Would it be similar to how when they came to WCW? You know how that, that felt a little real, a little live, but, uh, but as we said, Definitely a little topic for another episode. But anyways, so to, to, to focus on the CM Punk shoot. Anyways, to focus on the CM Punk pipe bomb, right? I mean, 
it came unexpectedly, right? I mean, at this point, CM Punk was essentially one foot, one foot in out of WWE. He had been aligned with the Nexus prior to this. He had a great match against Randy Orton at WrestleMania that year. You know, and I guess at this point, right, it's like, well, what was what was next for CM Punk? What direction were they going to go with? You know, um, they had already announced The Rock to be the headline uh, main event, right, in, uh, in a match against John Cena. Once in a lifetime, right? Uh, next year's WrestleMania. And basically this was like already leaving CM Punk out in the cold to be the main event of that year's WrestleMania. Which, you know, that that seemed to be like one of the bigger things after CM Punk left the WWE, one of the big things he always was kind of, you know, he's always been saying is that he wanted to be the WrestleMania headliner, right? Yes. And like the WWE never treated him like the headliner, the main event. And this, this seems to have manifested and culminated in this pipeline. He was frustrated. Pretty much... I understand where he's coming from. He was he felt overshadowed. Like you said, The Rock was announced to be main eventing the following year's WrestleMania with John Cena, which was once in a lifetime that it was announced a year prior of a WrestleMania. And they ne- he needed to do something or that they needed to do something with him to make him stand out from the crowd. So let's Set this up. Set up the pipe bomb the way you remember it. From what I remember, it was an episode of Raw. Uh, the main event was John Cena versus R-Truth in a tables match. And I remember that time they were kind of giving R-Truth a little push. Uh, they made him a heel. We'll go against uh, John Cena. And all of a sudden, that episode of Raw... CM Punk comes out, which first thing that caught my attention, he's wearing a Stone Cold t-shirt. Yes, yes. Uh, that was definitely one of those things that catches your attention, like, right away. Well, that's not a CM Punk shirt. That's a Stone Cold shirt. Yes. And he was just watching the match, and then John Cena noticed he was outside of the, of the ring, and they started going at it. Due to CM Punk interfering, our truth... Got the win over John Cena. Put him through a table. I believe it was a spear that uh, R-Truth uh, did on yeah, John yeah. Cena. And then John Cena's down, you know. But in the most awkward it. position. Selling that in the most awkward position. You mean CM Punk? No. John Cena is selling that table. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like Just, 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 just take note of that for now. Because mind you, it wasn't a Goldberg spear. Or uh, Edge Spear. It was our truth And to be honest, our truth was like a lightweight compared to all the heavyweights. Well, I, I think the, the, the... Well, look, continue your story. Then I'll, then, then I'll, then I'll chime in on this... Uh, on the way John Cena's positioned at that point. Okay. And then CM Punk goes up the ramp to the stage. Okay. Sits down in uh, Indian position. Pretty good memory, man. And just starts... Speak his mind. He does speak his mind. But as he speaks his mind, one of the things that he says is basically, you know, um, hey, John, 
I want you to hear this while you're in the most uncomfortable position ever. Because when they pan out with the camera, you see John Cena just slumped over in that corner, just awkwardly positioned. And it's like he now has to like sell this until CM Punk is done doing whatever it is that he's doing, right? Understandable. Yeah, he just went through a table. You have to fucking sell it. Yeah. But do you think he, he played? But my, my point is, do you think John Cena, in hindsight, thought that CM Punk was going to the top of that ramp to lay out a promo? Do you think like he would have chosen to just like lay in a more comfortable <laughs> position after going through a table? No, he probably didn't That's think... That's the only John, question that I have. He probably didn't think that CM Punk was going to you know, do this promo. Okay, but continue, continue. That was just a and, little thing I know. <laughs> I noticed that he actually pointed out. Yeah, like if CM Punk just went at it, like I believe when I first saw this, like you know, I, I was watching it live on TV. He he was speaking the truth, like you know, CM Punk was there for a couple years. He came through ECW. Well, before that, he was in OVW. And before that, he was in ROH, the Indies, a brief stint in uh, TNA wrestling at the time. And to my recollection and my opinion, CM Punk is a hell of a wrestler. And he's just been overshadowed since he got to the Like you said earlier, not that much people in the back saw him as one of the guys and the guy that could lead this company to higher stakes. Agreed. Uh, you know, and essentially, you know, he, he, he sits he sits on top of the ramp, Indian style, right on the stage. You know, he, he just kind of goes into it, right? Uh, first of all, you know, he begins by aiming that promo right at Cena, right? Uh, basically says, hey, John, I don't dislike you. I don't even despise you. I just don't think you're the best, Right? That that's that's the way he starts, right? He goes, uh, you know, he hates the idea that Cena's the best, and this is when he starts to finally introduce the best in the world, right? You hadn't heard best in the world from him up until that point, right? Yeah. Um. You know, he starts going into into things like ass kiss, ass kissing, right? He mentions former talents who, if you if you think about the names he listed. They all have similar builds, and they were all built as the top guy. Hulk Hogan. Dwayne Johnson, right? And then he breaks the fourth wall by going, Dwayne, right? And then he goes, I think I just broke the fourth wall, right? Which he mentioned is his real name. Yeah, right? Because everyone knows him as The Rock. So, right? By breaking the fourth wall, he's alluding to, to, to hey, we're talking about this outside of the, the storylines of the WWE where he's The Rock, right? Then he goes... John Cena, all kiss asses, right? Like, like this is him, and and and, you know, the demeanor, the voice, the tone, all of this just like helps sell. You know what I mean? He, um, it was real, it was real, and 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 like you said, you know, he didn't have a lot of fans in the back, but one of the, his biggest supporters is Paul Heyman, and this is when you hear the Paul Heyman guy, right? He's like, I'm. He's like, I'm a Paul Heyman guy, right? That, that, that's him, right? And, you know, the thing with Paul Heyman is when Paul Heyman chooses you or tries to pitch you and tries to aim you to be like, hey, like, good sir, this is the guy you need to pay attention to, Philip Brooks, otherwise known as C. 
M Punk, right? Like there's always there's always been this like aura around being affiliated with Paul Heyman, where usually it kind of gets you buried because a lot of people, I guess in the industry, well at least the way they like make it seem is that you know no one's a real fan of Paul Heyman, and if Paul Heyman's a fan of yours, well now the machine is gonna go against that, right? Um, you know he talks about you know. Paul Heyman believing in him, you know, uh, how he was getting buried, you know, like, and how just everyone viewed him in a very, like, particular way. Like, I saw CM Punk always as a Mick Carter up to that point. And up to that point, you get to realize that everything he's saying is pretty much 100% true. Yeah. CM Punk was like the face of the company because he was pretty much handpicked by Vince because of his look. And it goes back to back in the Federation years that the big guys are going to be the ones running the company. And someone like CM Punk back in the Federation years wouldn't last in the WWE. Which, which I think is interesting, right? Because I was actually going to mention that too where it's like so guys like Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Randy Savage, it's a lesser degree. Um, but these guys, even like Stone Cold, Stone Cold wasn't like the biggest guy either, but they kind of helped propel that the smaller, less built guys can be champion, can be heavyweight champions. They can be believable. And then came guys like Eddie Guerrero, you know, Ray Mysterio. Chris Jericho. Ray Mysterio. You know, they were breaking boundaries with these guys. But I think it wasn't until CM Punk that really that propelled it to another level where the where the WWE finally took note and was like, you know what? A guy his size and stature can be the face of the company. They can push. You know, they they can go forward and be the face, right? I mean, if you take a look now, I mean look, you got Daniel Bryan, AJ Styles. You know, even Finn Balor, even though he had the Universal title for a very short period of time, one had, day, yeah, had had got the opportunity. Had he not been injured, he would have been going forward with that, right? Um, you know, so you have examples of these like smaller guys nowadays being at a top position, and I think really that has a lot to do with like CM Punk finally breaking it because these guys all come from the same time era scene that. CM Punk made his name and claimed to fame, right? They all were part of that same whole indie circuit, you know? Um, so I think, you know, with his pipe bomb, he was basically, like, touching on that. Like, hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at my look. Look at the way the fans react to me. You know, I can be the guy, but you're not giving me the opportunity. All I need is the ball, and once I get that ball, I ain't dropping it. Right? He's just going forward, right? Um, well, remember, he also was not not that he was looking out for himself, but at the same time, he was leading the way for other smaller guys my at that time. That's my point. He's the guy He's the guy that did it. In a way, guys before him did it, but no one, I think, his size did it the way he did. You know, like... Shawn Michaels might, might, might come the closest, but by no means do I think Shawn Michaels is 
is or could ever be as good as CM Punk is on the mic. No, you can't compare that. You I think cannot so. compare. I think Shawn Michaels and CM Punk's mic skills are totally different. Shawn Michaels is good on the mic, but he's not great on the mic. Mm. Not not the way CM Punk's great on the mic. Yeah, because when at first when Shawn Michaels, even before he became champion in ninety six, he won the title. You, you hardly heard him on the mic. You have a little promos here and there. Into but there could be a point. So what I'm saying is if you're not great on the mic, then you're not going to get the mic as much as someone who is good on the mic. Right? Roddy Piper, great on the mic. Always had a mic. Even had the Piper's Pit segment because he's probably so great on the mic. So Michael has also said things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, all right, all right, whatever, whatever. But you get my point. My, my point is compare Shawn Michaels and CM Punk on mic skills. One of those two men are better than the other. And I'm going to say definitely... CM Punk delivers on the mic more times than none over Shawn Michaels, right? I agree. Um, you know, but then what I remember about this pipe bomb interview is also the brass ring. Here's what you hear about the brass ring, right? Where CM Punk was like, you know, Miss McMahon talks about the brass ring, this imaginary brass ring. And he goes, and that's all it is. It's imaginary because I've gone out there to reach for it and... You know, like, I get nothing for it. Agree. He, like I said, he touched subjects that before that that pipe bomb it was you never heard of that of. stuff. Yeah, you never heard that stuff in the ring. Yeah, no, you heard of it like online and outside of television, but not in the WWE. Never on camera. But you never even heard about the brass ring to that point. If you, you know, like I've never heard anything on the net or anywhere alluded to. There's a brass ring. Right, which then we heard many years, like right, I think after that, a couple years after that, right, uh, with guys like Cesaro and stuff, right, where he should be grabbing that. But what about like the other thing where he goes, uh, you know, like and throughout this, you know, he he's like still shooting or whatever, right, and he talks about, hey, you know what? And what I forgot to mention was he goes, and you know who else was the Paul Heyman guy? Brock Lesnar, and Brock Lesnar left, but he goes, but this time if I if I go as a Paul Heyman guy, he's like I'm leaving with that title, right. So it's like there are elements of shoot, but then there's elements of work, I think, too. That, that's like the other thing that I wanted yeah, to point once out you about mentioned, this interview. Once you mention the title, then you know, like, wait yeah. a minute, no, this, Come this, on. this cannot it's not, it's not a real title. This is not Montreal screwjob all over yeah. again. Yeah. And even then, I still think parts of that was work, but whatever. That could be uh, another time. Definitely go in depth. But, um, yeah, once, they, once he's mentioned the title that he, he could leave with the title... Then I knew, like, okay, it sounds real. He's selling it well. Um, I'm believing it, but okay, this is, WWE has something to do with this. Yeah, with him coming out and you know mentioning that he will leave with a belt, and then moving forward, every episode of Raw after that, you know they're trying to negotiate his contract yeah. on air, uh, sit downs and you know, here and there. Like uh, I remember, Vince would try to accommodate him, like you know sending him a limo. To pick him up and bring him to the arena. It's like the same way you record an athlete. Pretty much. Like, you know, when you try to, you know, sign somebody. But that's when I saw, like, okay. They they did it well, though. They fucking did it well. Like, I'll give Vince 100% credit that it worked. You know, he got, even at the time, people that weren't even wrestling fans believed it. Because I remember hearing something about that. USA Network's ratings went up 
drastically because of that. Because there's intrigue, there was interest. Because now, like what CM, what CM Punk did was he did he did break the fourth wall. He broke the fourth wall because he was talking about things that like you heard about, you know, through shoot videos from like you know guys like Scott Steiner, you know, disgruntled guys who left the company, you know, who badmouthed the McMahons and Hunter and this and that. Um, even things you read online. CM Punk was, at this point, very point in time, like doing something that wasn't heard of, like the brass ring, like we had mentioned, right? And he goes, hey, the only thing, the brass ring is imaginary, and you know what's real? I'm real. For six years that I've been here, all, I, all I've been is real, right? He's like, you know... He's the best in the in, in in the ring. He's the best on the mic. Hell, he was even the best on commentary. And I do remember that little brief stint when he was injured. He was on commentary. He was goddamn good too. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, you know. And then he started talking about, hey, but I'm not on the merch. You know, I'm not on TV as much. I'm not promoted. I'm not even on the signature that that appears at the beginning of every WWE like show, right? Like he wasn't even in it. You know, and like, then looking back at it, like he's right, he's yeah, not on the thing. Yeah, and think about it like this, you know, they had like I think the Miz, right? Maybe everybody's on one of the Marine movies. John Cena, right? I think Randy Orton had twelve rounds, right? Ted DiBiase, Ted DiBiase, you know, guys were on Fallon, you know, guys were on you know these late shows, but no CM Punk, and CM Punk would probably be one of the better, more interesting guys suited to potentially be on these shows because he had like real banter where he can be real funny you know um, it just comes natural to him yeah you know and, and, and that was the thing like what I f- took from this and I felt that it was like real you know he started like breaking down you know the whole rock Cena main event next to the, the year after that right you know how um, the fans start to cheer and even then he's like hey, you know part of the reason I'm leaving is because of you guys because you're the ones supporting this machine. And even after I'm gone, you're still going to support the machine. And you're not doing anything like I'm doing right here, right now, to basically change things, right? Like, he, he's trying to cause change, right? I mean, essentially, he says, yo, you guys are bringing me the same merchandise that I'm not on to sign at, like, 5 a.m. in the morning at the airport. And you expect me to not be mad. And then he goes, do people without any jobs then take this off and sell it on eBay? You know, like, I mean, he, he's basically breaking everything down. And, and eventually, you know, he, he starts to wind down and he says, all right, and you know what? And when I do face John Cena and I beat him for the title, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Maybe I'm going to go to New Japan with the title. Maybe I'm going to take it to ROH. And then he shouts out Cole Cabana, who was, you know, a former WWE star. And, you know, was an ROH. ROH. See, that was very interesting at the time. Again, the first time that a wrestler on air mentions other companies. Yeah, that is exactly it. Because not even during the Monday Wars, that was done. No. Um, here and there, maybe slight, like, I remember the DX thing. But they, they, but they, they were... But they alluded, they didn't, like, name the company, you know? You know, they talk about down south, the home of the big boys, you know? Go up north or east the, or whatever. What was know? the slogan they had? Uh, where, the where the big boys, big boys play. play? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was the first time where they... Then, 
mind you, I did hear about ROH. I knew about New Japan, but like, damn, he's mentioning companies that are like, uh, I'm not not to say they're lesser than WWE. It's just like they're not at that grand stage as WWE at the time. Now it's different. Now New Japan is up there. Like you've seen their Wrestle Kingdoms. Yep. ROH also could give you a hell of a pay per view, a hell of a show. So, I think, looking back at it, that pipe bomb propelled just not only WWE and CM Punk, other promotions as well. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, potentially, you know, that could have created some interest in, in those other companies. But I think more than anything is that this sold CM Punk as a brand, right? Like, he promoted himself, basically. Uh, you know, and, and then, the, I guess... at you know, at the end of the promo, he essentially cuts a promo on Vince, right? And basically says, you know, the reason that he's not a billionaire is because he has a bunch of yes men that okay his bad decisions, mm-hmm. right? And this is why you are where you are. Vince McMahon did later on to go to become a billionaire. Um, you know, he basically, like, throws John Laurinaitis under a bus. And then he says, you know, like, even after Vince's dead and that's what i thought was like ooh, here we go this is a bit more interesting he goes and even long after miss mcmahon is dead this company's gonna be ran to the ground because stephanie and hunter and the stupid mcmahon family's gonna run this business to the ground right and then he goes on you know and the way this thing kind of just ends is basically he goes you know i'm gonna tell you a personal story about miss mcmahon uh vince mcmahon and the anti-bully campaign right and then that's when they cut them they off. cut them off, right? And that's, you know, and that becomes the infamous CM Punk pipe bomb promo, right? I, to this day, we all know this, that's a shoot. There's definitely no way they just let, give this guy a live mic to go out there and don't cut it off sooner than later if he's off script, right? Um, I do think that a lot of the things he said were... There was real sentiment and feeling behind it, you know. Uh, it, in his delivery, in his speech, you can feel raw emotion, you know. Um, well, it's like going back to that, you know, referencing Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you believe in it. Yeah, exactly, you know. And he did a good job. I mean, it was unexpected, you know. And I think this ranks at the very top of some of the best promo work. And definitely, like, some shoot-off-the-cuff, like, interview that we saw. And I believe no one at the time would have sell it like CM Punk. No one now can sell it the way CM Punk does. Because CM Punk just offers this, like, I don't know. It's just, like, he's just so good on the mic that it's not fair to compare. I don't think anyone in the WWE currently, aside from Daniel Bryan, even has the mic skills to like shoot a promo like this. You know, it just it. I don't think anyone on that roster currently has the chops to do what he did. You know, um, but yeah, but th- th- those are my thoughts on uh, you know on the CM Punk. Uh, you know, pipe bomb. Any 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 closing thoughts on this uh, on this on this promo? Well, to add, that pipe bomb again changed the landscape. Yeah. Of the, not only of the E, 
but just the whole wrestling community. Yeah. It propelled other companies to step it up because he did mention ROH and New Japan and looking now at those promotions, they're doing very well. Mind you, ROH is going to be at the Garden in a couple weeks, which we thought would never, ever happen. Well, um, along with New Japan. Tell me that 10 years ago, I would have said no. Yeah, we always thought that he was always uh, Madison Square Garden bound. Um, it propelled other talents, careers, like a Zack Ryder, Daniel Bryan, to be the face of the company. Yeah. Even though Zack Ryder only got up to being U.S. champ and IC champ, he was known. You know, he was known on the internet. And I do stand corrected. The Miz is the current guy now that I think has the best my skills. Continue. Okay. Uh, I'll give you that. Um, and now he's becoming a face. I don't know, but I, I'd rather him a heel. But yeah. You, 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 no, but we'll, we'll talk more Miz later. That's for, you know, another topic. But, um, again, CM Punk, he, he went out, he, sh- he did the shoot promo. At first, you know, we thought just he was just being selfish and just thinking about himself. But at the same time, he was looking out for each and every one of those talents that weren't being recognized and weren't being acknowledged that they could be the face of the company. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we got now. We got a Daniel Bryan as world champ. We had AJ Styles as world champ. And I believe because of CM Punk, all of this has happened. One last thought. I agree with the Daniel Bryan thing. And, and I agree with the Daniel Bryan thing. And then Daniel Bryan, I feel like, did take CM Punk's place after CM Punk left and walked out. You know, so... Um, well, Daniel Bryan was the reason why he walked out. Well, one of the reasons. Yeah, one of the reasons, but I, I still don't think you it know, was the reason that had anything to do with it. I think it, it, it's all about him at the end of the day, and Daniel Bryan was propelled and helped by the CM Punk cause. Well, CM Punk proclaimed himself at the time the voice of the voiceless. With that said, we'll lead to the voice of the land of extreme, which is Joey Styles. Okay, I the one-man commentator for ECW before ECW was brought out by uh, WWE. So after ECW, you know, went under and got you know bought out by WWE, he was hired by uh, the World Wrestling Entertainment. To be uh, you know, play-by-play commentator alongside with... Uh, Replacing Jim Ross, who was out, or fired, or Supposedly, Thurlong was fired again, and he was alongside Jerry King Roller. To me, when he got signed to the league, like, it was great. I'm like, okay, we're going to have the guy that pretty much was the voice of ECW. Oh, my God! And... Pretty much, he didn't need no assist. He, he did it on his own. Yeah, he did it on his own for a long time. Well, like maybe four years, maybe maybe even more. Let's let's call it ninety ninety four, probably to about like ninety nine, early two thousand. Okay. But I felt coming here and being along with Jerry King Lawler, he wasn't gonna have that freedom he had in ECW. 
you know, Vince McMahon is always on, you know, the headset, you know, telling these guys what to say, when to say it during, um, you know, while, while they're on air. Well, interesting. I actually thought that Joey Styles coming over was going to be great. And I did think he was going to be allowed to do his ECW shtick. And I guess the other thing with that is at that point, I didn't realize that there was someone in their headset. I thought it was just all natural play by play. You know, that was insider info that I got a little later down the road. But yeah, you know, I, I thought Joey Styles would bring something interesting. Well, he did. He brought, you know, you, you felt a little bit of the ECW um, spirit there when he did the play-by-play. But I felt like they didn't, you know, mix well with Jerry King Lawler because Jerry King Lawler was very, you know, sarcastic, you know, and in-your-face with his humor. And Joey Styles was very, very serious when it came to play-by-play. Well, it's, it, it's funny because... I thought they would have meshed well together because Joel Gertner, who then became his color guy, right? There was two color guys. There was uh, Cyrus the Virus, right? The Jackal, uh, uh, formerly in the WWE. And then there was Joel Gertner, right? Who was the color guy who did, like, perverse, sick, like, sexual jokes and, you know, made all the wisecracks. But then there was always Joey Styles who kept the balance. Yeah, much. and but was a little over his top himself and was able to do the banter with the guys, you know. Yeah, but yeah, you, you could definitely say that. I, I know Joey Styles was more in your face and more. What's the word I'm trying to find here? Like you, you used to describe the matches in an over the top manner. Exactly. Yeah. He very emphatic and emphasized a lot to the T. Yeah, to be honest, because I, I I used to watch some of the ECW matches and the way he described the match and the storyline, it's like you felt you was part of it. Well, I mean, also the other thing with with his commentating style in ECW was that he essentially had to be extreme to match the extreme action going on on screen. Absolutely right. So you couldn't. You couldn't just talk about, oh, slobber knocker. Oh, by God, there goes mankind. By God. You know, it had to be more, oh, my God. Mike Awesome. Awesome bomb on the table. You know, like. like, it, like it was like, very ecstatic. Yeah, he had to be because, like, when somebody was doing a, a, a power bomb off the top rope with another guy to put him through a table on the outside, like, that requires a whole nother, like, skill set, right? Like, it describes you to. We just had to take it to another level. Yeah. And I remember, you know, on an episode of Raw, Joey Styles came out and he had a, an altercation with Jerry King Lawler. Yeah, prior to that, uh, what I, I forget, was Joey Styles doing like an in-ring interview or they had come back from commercial or whatever? And then like, Jay, like Jerry Lawler basically was talking about spirit. Like, hey, hey, Joey. Do that ECW shtick, just about. He was like, say that thing, say that thing, right? And he's like, come on, show some spirit, show some spirit. So then it was like he was kind of egging Joey Styles on, and Joey Styles, you can like, on screen, he was getting irritated. And he's like, spirit, huh? Spirit, huh? And he starts he like, kept shoveling, shoving, uh... shoving. And then finally he smacked Jerry Lawler, because like Jerry Lawler kind of finally got under his skin. Yeah. And what the funniest thing that I thought was that he goes, you little idiot. <laughs> you know, like Jerry Lawler goes. He pushed him back. Yeah, he pushes him and goes, you little idiot. You know, and then uh, Joey Styles. He just stormed out. Storms out, right? Uh, commercial break. Come back. 
Jerry's on the headset and he's like uh, apologizing. You know, I you know on the commercial break, I apologize to the fans. Um, you know, I, I just want to apologize to Joey for you know taking it to the extreme, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then Joey Stalin comes out. And he does this rank. great promo that I believe was very believable. And I didn't think it was a shoot at all. It was like... I the, mean, at work. It was the way... The scenario and the way he delivered it was so real, so passionate that he said himself, he said, he didn't call WWE for a job. WWE called him to come and help them out because, again, they fired Jim Ross. Well, he was doing advertising or something like that prior to ECW. And I think after he left, he went back to advertising. Well, from... Yeah, he has an advertising background and also, which to me is very intriguing because I did do some stuff in the advertising world. Um, He also um, does uh, web designing. So I know at a time, well, not at that time, but later later on, um, we will find out that he was the one responsible in heading the... WWE website. .com, yeah, Yeah. pretty much. And that's why they needed to write him off from the storyline. So he pulled this great promo on Jerry King Lawler saying that pretty much he was stating what CM Punk was stating about the other wrestlers. Like, he's better on commentary than Jerry King Lawler. He also called Lawler a hack. Probably at the commercial break, but... Because he goes... Cause, and I don't mean to interrupt, but... No. He basically goes, uh, Hey, Joey, do that ECW thing. You know, say, 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 say some ECW thing. He goes, you know, if this was ECW, I wouldn't be working with a hack like you. You know? He'll be working by himself. Yeah. Or, you know, the other commentary he had. Which which he mentions in, in, in the shoot promo. Yeah, that he would do pay-per-views by himself. And it'll be top-of-the-notch commentary. Never done before him, never done after. And looking back at the ECW days, you would never think that it was just one man calling the play-by-play. Well, he had so much energy, you know. There was so much energy when he did commentating, you know. And again, the thing with the ECW commentating, though, some of that was, like, dubbed on, I'm pretty sure, in a studio. And, like, Joey Styles wasn't actually there, mm-hmm. right? So it did allow for them to take breaks and maybe, you know, do that. Because, look, ECW had to do very smart and different things in order to make their talent look better than they actually were, right? Like, the Sandman was not, by any means, a good wrestler. So the presentation of the Sandman is what made the Sandman the Sandman, right? So that's what ECW was. ECW was essentially all about, like, parlor tricks, right? It was all about deception, making things better than they were. And to make certain talents shine better, you need a guy like Joey Styles to, again, like I was mentioning before, to present this extreme action in an extreme manner. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, I'll agree with you with that. Salmon was not a, a great wrestler. I don't even think he was really wrestling at the time. He would just come in, hit two or three people with a kendo stick, and be out. Yeah, I mean, he started doing a Frankensteiner, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's not get into that. But uh, going, going back to the shoot um, promo that Joey Styles did on... Not only to Jerry King Lawler, but to the WWE. 
that the WWE needed him. He didn't need WWE. And he kind of saw himself that he was better than WWE. But then also at the time, I knew it was a work because I knew at the time that... Oh, that was definitely a work. They were setting up for the relaunch of ECW. So they will have Joey Styles to be part of the commentary team alongside with Taz. And then Taz came out, you know, a couple of days on SmackDown and left Michael Cole um, high and dry on, you know, on the commentary uh, side. So part of me was like, yo, this is awesome. They're shooting this on the kink because it's true. At the same time, like, okay, I know why they're doing it. Yeah. They're, they're getting ready for the relaunch of ECW. Why not have Joey Styles on commentary and also alongside with um, Taz? And at the same time, because ECW was um, taped, I think, every other week or something like that, he will also have time to do his uh, uh, responsibilities with the uh, website. But, again, it was a great promo. He t- talked about pretty much his days in ECW that if it wasn't for his commentary, his skill set... Seven years. The original loose cannon of commentary. That there wouldn't be no Jerry King Law. There wouldn't be no Jim Ross. And so on. Well, I, I disagree with that. I, like That's not my interpretation of it. Because there was a Jim Ross before Joey Styles in WCW. Um, but yeah, it definitely goes on to say, hey, seven years, I did this thing unscripted, uncensored... A loose cannon of commentary, um, you know, again, much like you said, he didn't need the job. They called him, you know, and, and, and basically he was like, all right, let's try this, right? I'm replacing uh, Jim Ross, right? Uh, and then he wanted to mention that he was uh, not taken seriously because of his, uh, what was I saying, ecstatic, dramatic... Yeah, fashion. Like, they, they, they told him... You're not calling pro wrestling. You're calling sports entertainment, right? And I think one of the things that he emphasized, well, I don't think, I know he emphasized in, 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 you know, in, in this pipe bomb, right, was basically that he was being told what, you to, know, do. what to do. What he to was say. He being told what to say, how to say it, right? There was someone in his ear constantly saying it. I mean, he was like, hey, I'm sick and tired of sports entertainment you know he goes it's insulting when you're telling me hey don't call out the moves just talk right just explain the storyline pretty much he's like it's insulting to the guys who are out here doing that thing in the ring you know that that's his that was his style and like i said right he would call the moves right he would make he would sell it right um you know, uh, you got to hit one point here that he felt very disrespected that he was bumped for WrestleMania that year. Exactly. That was actually my next point. Sorry. Bumped for WrestleMania. And backlash. Backlash as well. But going back to WrestleMania, you think that, okay, if I'm AJ Styles, I got hired by WWE, you know, to be the play by play and be on commentary. Like, WrestleMania's coming up. I'm going to be part of WrestleMania. And then the Fans or whoever to come and tell me, you're not going to be doing any commentary for WrestleMania. Like, that is very disrespectful because of my way of presenting my play-by-play. And I think that put it to the top that, which 
you know, everything he said was pretty much evolving and surrounding that he was bumped for WrestleMania. That was a slap in the face to his skill set, his tenure in ECW, what he did in ECW on the mic, you know, doing the play-by-play, and that he wasn't taken seriously by the WWE. And... You know, he, he even went on to talk about Vince McMahon, right? Another, 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 you know, uh, the shoot, another pipe bomb, right? That name drops Vince McMahon. He was basically saying, hey, look, I'm tired of the chairman. I'm tired of things like the spirit squad. I'm tired of the bathroom humor. I'm tired of having to see Vince McMahon kissing divas, right? Like, he's like, hey, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of sports entertainment. I'm sick of the fans. I quit. Right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and see, the thing about this, too, that, that we need to, like, point out was that not only was this, like, a great shoot, pipe bomb, promo, whatever, like, he did this better than a lot of guys who are given a mic that actually wrestle in the ring that perform in the ring like Joey Styles got like some legit like vocal talent and I'll tell you what man that to me was like pretty good for a non-wrestler yeah yeah cause he, mean, he pretty much laid it out in detail everything that was wrong with the company at the time yeah and, you know, him also stating that Vince McMahon was making fun of God. I mean, this was like the OG pipe bomb, to be honest, on WWE TV. Before the CM Punk. To a degree, yeah. So. I mean, and I still think it was it was scripted, for sure. Definitely scripted. Yeah, scripted, but, you know, he probably had his, you know, insights here and there, you know, his input. But to me, that was one of the... Uh, most, you know, not most, but one of the infamous ones that I remember that I can recollect that stand out to me. I don't know about you, but, you know, it it, it goes on my list that it, it stands out and it will all still be standing out for years to come. Agreed. So, moving forward on this uh, pipe episode, um, another infamous uh, pipe bomb that we're going to discuss is... The Miz, alongside with um, Daniel Bryan, Renee Young, talking and Smack. I know SmackDown had that little pre-show. No, I mean post-show. 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 After the every SmackDown, and Miz really delivered on this one. He pretty much um, was you know talking something about his the way he he wins his matches, something like that. And Daniel Bryan was the GM at the time for SmackDown. And we all knew that us, Daniel Bryan was out of action. He was uh, diagnosed with a severe concussion that he wouldn't be able to wrestle well, again. CTE. CTE, yeah. Yes. So it's a culmination of concussions. So if you don't mind, I, I just want to set the scene. Right? Yeah. So it's Talking Smack. Renee Young's interviewing. Um, alongside Daniel Bryan, the general manager of SmackDown at the time, The Miz with Maurice, right? Uh, so, you know, basically Daniel Bryan goes on into saying, you know, um, 
that the Miz wrestles like he's afraid to get hit, right? Mm-hmm. And already, you know those are fighting words, bro, right? Scripted or not scripted. You know, uh, Daniel Bryan basically says that the Miz has a soft style, and if he were on the indies crafting or creating uh, a wrestler and, and, and a style type, he said basically wouldn't be the Miz, right? And this kind of starts to agitate the Miz, gets the Miz irate, right? So the Miz interrupts, right? Uh, and, you know, this is after like Daniel Bryan kind of alluded to him being a coward, right? Calling him a kind of coward. You know, the Miz goes, coward? I'm a coward. He goes, look, my style is safe, he goes. My style allows me to be in the ring day in and day out for all this time without sacrificing my body, getting any injuries. I'm never injured, right? So he Put gets mad. Fact. It's a fact. I mean, it's a fact. He gets mad. He goes off, right? He's calling down Brian a coward because he's constantly in and out of the ring because he's injured because Daniel Bryan has, right? So, you know, Daniel Bryan was like, hey, I'm going to get better. I'll be back in a year's time. And The Miz calls him a coward because it's not true. You're done. You're out. There's no coming back, right? So The Miz is, like, calling him out on this, you know, telling him this stuff. And, like, at that point, I mean, you know, Daniel Bryan tries to interject himself and say something. And then The Miz just tells him he should quit the WWE. And go back to the indie scenes and the bingo halls if he wants to wrestle again because it can't happen here. And then Daniel Bryan like walks off, right? So Renee Young tries to interrupt, right? Basically trying to like keep the peace. But the Miz keeps on going and he tells Daniel Bryan as Daniel Bryan's walking away. He tells Daniel Bryan that he's not the way that's walking out from the ring. Daniel Bryan's the one leaving the ring, right? And the Miz says, you don't love your fans. I love the fans, right? I keep doing this every day for respect. I love the business. This title means everything, right? That you the know, IC title. Yeah, the IC title. Yes, Intercontinental title. Let's be specific. The Intercontinental title, right? And that Daniel Bryan's the one walking away. He isn't a coward, right? The reason he has a title and the title means what it means is because he defends it. Hundred and 141 days consecutive as Intercontinental Champion at that point, right? And that the other belts don't matter. But this is the belt, right? He's making this belt something that hadn't been for a while. And that he was sick of being criticized when he's he's the one that shows up day in, day out. He thanks Renee and walks away. Now, this is a, like... Uh, a hell of a shoot slash pipe bombish interview promo because I mean there is a little like heat there from the NXT days so it's personal pretty much this pretty much makes it very personal and for one to think that these two really despise each other and that you know Daniel Bryan when he first got on the scene in the WWE he was under the Miz through the NXT uh, developmental at the time was like a 
like a reality type show, that competition pretty much. And prior to that, Daniel Bryan was a name in the indies. He's an indie darling. That's the Red Dragon. Yes, and I believe CM Punk. Whoa, CM Punk. The Miz. My mistake. Um, well, we can mix CM Punk a little bit there because you know Daniel Bryan. Um, the Miz took offense to that. The Miz, you know, put in his hard work through Tough Enough, through, you know, WWE, throughout all these years, and to have someone like Daniel Bryan just come out from the indies and be a star, he, he took offense to that. Well, yeah, because I think the big one of the biggest criticisms about The Miz is that The Miz is a company guy. The Miz never broke. You know, broke in the same way, right? Um, as as some of these other, you know, indie darlings like Daniel Bryan did, and it's not a fair comparison. You know what I mean? The Miz is good at what he does, and and I think I've said this to you before. I think the Miz is one of the best heels in the business today. One of the better equipped guys on the mic, and you know what? Yeah, so maybe he doesn't do moon salts, and you know he's not flipping around. And going through the top, you know, rope or planchas and this or that. But you know what? The style he works does tell great matches. Because ultimately with The Miz, he's he's a solid guy in the ring. Yes, he's not going to do a hurricanrana. You know, he's, he, he's not going to, you know, dive through the ropes, you know, to the outside. But the guy is sturdy. The guy is solid. And he does deliver. And he is must-see TV. He's the A-lister, and you know at the time, look, it it the the vid the, the video, but this interview on Talking Smack, it almost made Daniel Bryan seem resentful. You know, it made him seem like you know he was still pining for the business, and this is what I would do. This isn't the way I would do it, you know. And but the Miz is living it, and was present at that moment and is the intercontinental champion and you know what why talk down to your champion better yet as a gm why point why point you know why point your finger you know at the guy you know and i, and I think it was a really great way where the miz got set off there was real emotion between both of them and the best part of that is probably when daniel bryan did walk away because it sold it more you know like this there was more there was more to this than than just a couple than just two guys who were talking. Well, with Daniel Bryan walking away, it made it seem that the Miz is right. Yeah, Miz, he's a coward. He, he quits. Yeah, and it's not that I can't say that he quit. It's just he he couldn't compete. But it, for the Miz, on, in his eyes, that Daniel Bryan was a quitter. Yeah, yeah, and that's then and, and and I guess if you're looking for both sides of the coin, right? You're looking at it like one way, and I look at it the other. You know where this was. This was just like the perfect way to end that. And who knew that that would lead the following year to Daniel Bryan coming back and having an epic match and epic rivalry starting at this uh, past year SummerSlam. Yeah, and you know that's what it was. It was the perfect culmination, right? It was the way to bring it full circle. Pretty much. And again, WWE does these things all the time that they set something up not knowing what was going to result from it and it worked out 
very well to both superstars. Yeah, because this was see, and this is one of those things that WWE does better when you know than most is when they do a storyline that's actually a long-winded one, but there's a payoff. Not one that gets hinted to and never actually comes to fruition. Like, you know, recreating the Bullet Club? Or teasing it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, that though, I'm done with this one. Uh, I'm done as well. But that, was, that has to be one of the also great moments in WWE Pipe Bomb history, too. History. You know, because it, was, it just felt so real. And it led to a rivalry that continued on after year end. And, like, I agree. The Miz sells it well on the mic. Point blank. All right. Well, I got one for you. Go ahead. Dolph Ziggler, Pipe Bomb, WWE app. Okay. I may have uh, an idea what you... Maybe referring to okay, uh, so just just to paint the picture on this one, uh, the interview takes place after a loss to Cesaro in an elimination match uh, qualifier, right? Uh, so he's being interviewed and he's asked how he feels after the loss, and then Dolph just kind of his demeanor changes. You know, I mean, he he looked down from the loss, but then once the interview starts, it's like he's more upset agitated and you know he, he he starts off by saying his entire life since he was five he always did things better than others you know um as a wrestler in high school and college he was the best you know in the wwe he had the and even in life he had the it factor right not just athletic ability you know he could he could walk into a room talk to anyone do anything you know, he can do uh, media circuses and he can address the media, basically go to work on no sleep and still deliver and give matches that are probably like five-star matches with his performance. So he was a workhorse of the WWE. Exactly. And even on no sleep, he can still do better than most, right? And at this point... You can see that he it starts to look like he's getting angrier and angrier. And he goes, he says it a lot, but he comes out here and he does this every night. Every single night. And he shouts louder and louder. And then he calms down. And then says, you know, what does he get for being this good? He gets pulled to the side and he basically told everything he does is wrong, right? But I mean, look, even in real life, even at work. No one ever tells you the things you're doing right. Someone's always being a Debbie Downer and telling you what it is you're, you're doing, doing wrong. wrong, right? So he says he watches the product and he knows that what he does is right. Because look, as fans, we watch the product and we know what we see a lot of times. is like, eh, I don't know, right? Um, you know, and everyone else is doing things wrong, so he knows he's right, right? And... He does what it takes to be the best ever. And that he won't stop until he reaches that point. But then he kind of contradicts himself because he goes, he doesn't know like how much longer he can do that. But I guess I kind of get it. And um, he says that all the things he's told, right? That he's not tall enough. 
he's a loser, he's too loud, he runs his mouth in the back, you know, that he can back that up against anyone, anywhere, and that no one in the business will outwork him or outshine him. And to be honest, I thought, you know what, this is well said, it's all true, and I mean, he is one of the better workhorses in the business. Even till today. Even till today, even though he gets jobbed all the time. I mean, he's such a great seller and, you know, underutilized. So, you know, good thing you mentioned this uh, shoot promo from um, Dolph Ziggler. You know, now I definitely remember it. Um, Yeah, he lost to Cesaro and he was just frustrated the way he's being handled, how the company views him. And that he will never make it to a main event or be the top guy in the business. But even to today, and I agree with you, he's one of the top workhorses in the industry itself. And he's being underutilized. Yeah, and, you know, I think what he was saying was with a lot of conviction, like, there was a lot of conviction behind it, there was, like, a lot of feeling, you know, it almost seems partially true, because I do believe, now more than ever, that holds true. Maybe not so much at that point, because, you know, he he was utilized a little more, and I don't think he was jobbing, jobbing, jobbing all the time, but then he started doing that, Right? And maybe sometimes you're too good at your job. And this is one of those things that, you know, when you're too good, sometimes you aren't given the same opportunities as others because people go, that guy, we can trust him. We can come back to him. When we need something done, this guy can do it. And in the business, I, you know, I would imagine when it comes to this guy can do the job, it means just that. Just a job. No, that he'll, he's going to job. He's going to lose matches to people, to put other people over because he's so talented that even if he loses, the fans still support him. People are still behind him. People still want to see him, you know, win matches. And hey, you know what? Any match Dolph Ziggler's in, Dolph Ziggler could potentially be the winner. Although, not as of late. But, you know, this one was good because I think what I like about some of these, I, I guess the, the main point with some of these... Uh, you know, pipe bombs, or the ones we've discussed, is that there's emotion in it. You know, there's emotion. And emotion sells, right? Emotion, if I'm not, if I'm telling, if I'm expressing to you that someone in my life died, and I'm like, hey, guess what? Roger died. I mean, you know, you're going to react to that differently than if I go, can you believe it? Roger died, right? And I think that's what this and all of these pipe bombs have in common is the emotion. Right? Well, they have to sell it. But that's the point. But some people aren't good at that, right? And in selling with emotion, there needs to be real emotions behind that. There needs to be a catalyst. There has to be some I mean? truth yeah. behind it. And again, uh, I believe, of course, this was worked. It's under the WWE umbrella. Um... But it's just, I think they were just giving, you know, Dolph Ziggler, well, at that time, the 
a form just to express himself and for him to vent how he's feeling at the moment. Yeah, he lost a match, but just it just went on beyond that of losing a match. And I think that he knew that going in and just gave him that open form. Like, listen, just vent it out. This is your time. Say what we gotta say. We'll go buy it. Simple as that. Any uh, any any closing any other closing thoughts on uh, on this pipe pipeline? That was great. He sold it very well. Just like everything he does. And yeah, absolutely. And and the reason why he sold it very well. Again, there was some truth behind it, and also that struck me compared to the ones that we mentioned before. This was done as a, at the time as a app exclusive. It wasn't on air. It wasn't, you know, during a Raw, during a SmackDown. Which could have gave him more creative freedom, potentially, too. Exactly. But this was done, like, in, in behind the scenes. You had to sign into the app to really see this going on. So you could say it was an exclusive interview that he was doing. Well, you know, um, we got a couple more on this list. What's your next? It has to be 1998, the Attitude Era, with <clears throat> The Undertaker breaking kayfabe. I don't know if you remember that um, distinctively. I, you know, it's odd, odd uh, you know, to break kayfabe here, uh, you know, there was a list put together for this, right? And this was one of those. And you know what? I don't... I honestly don't remember watching this on TV. Uh, but, you know, I, I did go on YouTube. And, you know, I did... You know, I did, I did give it a glance and a view. Well, I'll, I'll explain the scenario and what was going on. Um, at the time, the Federation added two years. Stone Cold was champion. He was with his, you know, up and starting rivalry with Mr. McMahon. Um... Mr. McMahon didn't see Austin as the face of the company, even, you know, regardless or not that he was a champion. And Vince McMahon would do anything possible to try to get the belt away from Austin. At the time, from my point of view, they needed some fresh faces in the whole Stone Cold McMahon feud. You know, he just couldn't be just McMahon and Austin. Um, I know they threw Mick Foley in there as Do Love, Mankind. I know Kane was mixed in also as well. And then, out of nowhere, The Undertaker was added into the storyline. So, it was a night after Over the Edge. I know Austin was successful in the defending his title against Do Love. And The Undertaker, at that over-the-edge pay-per-view, we came out to pretty much be in uh, Austin's corner against Do Love and the corporation at the time, which was Mr. McMahon, um, Gerald Briscoe, and Pat Patterson. The Undertaker came out that night on Raw, the night after, and the first thing that caught my was he wasn't wearing his Undertaker gear. He was just wearing sweatpants, black boots, 
black shirt, black athletic shirt, almost look like 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 a sweatshirt, pretty yeah. much. His hair just all out, and he comes out through not even the the ramp, the main ramp, the side ramp. Yeah, after a match on Raw, a Val Venus match, I think, because Val Venus's music was playing. Yeah, which Val Venus was hot at the time yeah. as a new uh, superstar. And he just pretty much laid it out there. Like, he's been in the company for so many years. I didn't realize he was in the company at the time for 10 years. That long, The Undertaker was in. And he was right. He did mention things that he was protecting the businessman investments in the bigger guys, the main event guys. They couldn't go toe-to-toe with the Giants, the Freaks, like uh, a Giant Gonzalez, uh, King Kong Bundy, uh, Khan Mustafa, and so on. And Undertaker, with his gimmick, he was the slayer of all these guys. And that Vince McMahon pretty much, to say, used the Undertaker to take care of these guys because these guys couldn't touch the champion at the time. And he went out like, okay, I did my time. I did this favor for McMahon throughout all these years. And now it's my turn to get a shot at the world title against Austin. And it worked very well because throughout the whole summer, you had that rivalry between The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. I know they added Kane in there and Paul Bear, but... But that was one of the things they had also mentioned too, right? That, you know, throughout this whole thing, you know, then they they threw into the picture Kane and Paul Bear and all all his family business was being put out there. Yeah, because you didn't know anything about The Undertaker prior to that point. You didn't, you didn't know he had a brother. Yeah. You didn't know Paul Bear was the father of his brother and he had sex with his mother. <laughs> and no, it, no. it made great storylines for that summer. I always thought that for some reason, the summertime was like the best storylines out there in the past years. I don't know about now, but during those attitude years and the Federation years, I think they let it, let it all out in the summertime. I don't know why, but it just... Sure. Sure. Uh, I don't know. It's just something can be really explained. Yeah. You you seem to have summed up this this particular uh you know, promo shoot, um, pipe bomb. Uh yeah, you know, and it, it was interesting because, you know, looking back at it, you know, again, like I said, I, I don't recall anymore on T but it's been so long. But watching it on YouTube, I'm like, Okay, all right, uh it's interesting to see the Undertaker out of the gimmick which lent itself to more credibility, right? But I guess one of the things that took me out of it was like, you know, because even then I knew, come on, The Undertaker doesn't really have a brother, mm-hmm. right? Like, no one really got set on fire, you know what I mean? Uh, so I think that kind of took away from me, you know, because if you wanted to make this as legit and real as possible, you should have just kept out the whole Kane and Paul Barra thing. Because now in retrospect, I guess, you know, now me looking at it with fresher eyes, because I'm sure I saw it, but I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But now looking at it at this moment when I did, I'm like, man, this could have been better if they would have just maybe not talked about The Undertaker having a brother and, you know, Paul Barra banging his mom, you know? Like, it should have just been all focused on Mark Calloway, the man. And Vince. And Vince. You know, Mark Calloway, the man. Mark Calloway, The Undertaker, you know, or The Undertaker, Mark Calloway, 
He's the one that wants an opportunity. He's the one that wants to be in a title shot, you know, or, or wants to earn a title shot or have the title shot. And, you know, like you said, what, what I, what I, I guess I, and I think a lot gets lost in a shuffle is there are times where the Undertaker is great on the mic. And then there are times when the Undertaker isn't as active and is away and his mic skills get rusty. You know, he's like one of those guys where practice makes perfect, even though he's been in the business for so long. In the last couple of years with the lead ups to he's like like these WrestleMania matches that he has, you know, his time is so limited that, you know, his promos sometimes seem forced. You know, they don't seem as natural. And this was a perfect time. Where I was just like, man, the, no wonder he wanted to do the American Badass gimmick. Because it allowed him to be more Callaway. And, you know, the thing with gimmicks is what they say is that they're just an extension of you. Just more exa- just exaggerated, right? And I think that's one of those things. Where The Undertaker is just an exaggeration of Mark Calloway. But maybe Mark Calloway himself is a character. You know? And that's why I thought, because... When he came out here... Get in here, this, uh, no, you just heard Mark, uh, Mark, <laughs> you just heard Mark Calloway, no, you just heard Mark Calloway talk, and the way Mark Calloway talks is a bit more like this, not like this, you know what I mean, there's, there's, he wasn't the gimmick. there's a difference in cadence and delivery, you know what I mean, and it just seemed natural, and it seemed like it just it, it just flows better, you know? And that's why I thought, aside from this Kane thing, everything else about that was real. I would have I sold that as real had you not thrown it in. mentioned the Kane and, and uh, Paul Bear. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. You know, we kept it with a, all about the business, about Vince giving him the opportunity, then taking away the opportunities, not mentioning Kane being a brother and Paul Bear his mom this would have been so believable it was a good shoot but not believable but it stands out to me because again this was the first time that we saw the Undertaker out of a character on TV which is very rare you know we've seen photos you know him with the guys but you know, we, we knew, you know, they all, you know, get along very well. It's just that on air, this is the first time we see Mark Calloway, the guy, not the Undertaker. So I think that's, you know, that's my opinion about it. Like it, was, it, it would have been more believable if the whole storyline with Kane and Paul Bear wasn't thrown into the whole shoot. Yeah, I mean, look, again, this this was great. Vince McMahon then does come out and basically says, hey, you know, what have you done for me lately? Um, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I have appreciated you and I do appreciate you for what you've done, but what have you done for me lately? But you know what? You want a match? I'll give you a match. You're going to have a match one-on-one versus, I think it was Kane? Yes. Right? Uh, for a number one contenders match. And if you beat Kane, you'll be put into the title match, right? Into, or a title match. So that that's the way that ended. And then, you know, Vince walks away. You know, there was no real jabs um, exchanged between them. But 
Yeah, then when once Vince came out, then you knew the work was in. I'm like, okay, this is part of the storyline. This is not believable anymore. This is part of the show. Yeah, but that's the thing too. Like, really, when... but you but they caught the audience for a split second, and then okay, bring them back to reality. You know, and and I don't want to mess up your order here, um, but I think this this if if you don't mind. A perfect segue here, though, right? Speaking of Vince Vince McMahon coming out and stuff, is the Bret Hart one you mentioned when Bret Hart snaps? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Right. Uh, essentially, Vince McMahon comes into the ring to interview an irate Bret Hart who just lost his match, and Vince comes to go, "Hey." You know what? What's you know what's wrong, right? He he's basically trying to understand like you know what's. Said something about you. You must be frustrated. And Brett agreed that, you know, frustrated is not even the goddamn word for it. He just lost it pretty much. He's being screwed. And irony, you know, we jump from the other ticket to Brett, and it was a steel cage match. If I remember, he lost to Psycho Sid was. At the time, the WF champion. And Bret Hart was going to win the match by escaping the cage. And out of nowhere, The Undertaker slams the cage door on Bret's face. And pretty much, you know, cost him the match. And while they take away the cage, I, you know, they go, you know, they cut on break. They, you know, they have the assembling the cage back in the day. They used to set up the cage yeah. one by one. And... Vince come up and does the whole, you know, interview thing, and Brett just Pushes. shoves him. Yeah, Brett shoves and him to goes, the back. And he goes, frustrated isn't even the goddamn word. This is bullshit. Bullshit, right? Like, when had you? When have you heard Bret Hart say that? And honestly, aside from Bret Hart, I don't ever recall past, present, Bullshit being used, but Bret Hart used that quite a few times actually as to describe things. Yes, you know everything was always bullshit to Bret Hart. You know this is bullshit, bullshit. I'm trying to I'm trying to practice. When I was a kid, I could do this Bret Hart thing easily, but I also didn't go to preview at the time. But you're right. You know, look, he, he it was like yeah, the guy looked frustrated as hell. He got screwed. No one cares. This is an injustice. This is an injustice, right? He he's like, you know, everyone knows I should be champ, right? And you know, he he says everyone's blind, you know, Gorilla Monsoon. He goes, You're blind to it, and he points to Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. Right? But what I loved about this particular promo is that I still to this think Bret Hart was really the one that was interacting with Mr. McMahon. Right? Because okay. it was, to me, it was like when, when Brett was making this heel turn, anytime anything went wrong, there was Vince that Brett was always kind of pointing the finger to and directing. Because when Stone Cold and Vince McMahon first started interacting, Stone Cold interacted with Vince McMahon, from my recollection, as Vince McMahon's just like another ring announcer, just another guy interviewing me, right? It wasn't until after Bret Hart left that then the Mr. McMahon character really started coming into form. 
But I always say, when looking back on it, that, like, Bret Hart was the one who was really first interacting with the Mr. You know, bringing out the Mr. McMahon character and doing things towards McMahon that other guys weren't doing yet. So you're saying pretty much Stone Cold and the McMahon feud wasn't the feud that put out there that McMahon is the boss. It was pretty much Bret Hart. Bret Hart. Think about it. That's like to be honest. That's Bret Hart breaks the fourth wall, and this go, and and this is taking it back to the whole CM Punk thing, right? Breaking the fourth wall here in this instant is basically Bret going acknowledging that you Vince is the boss. Gorilla Monsoon turned a blind eye, but we knew Gorilla Monsoon was in a power position, right? But when he goes you, and he points at McMahon. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I was like, what does he mean? You know? Because, like, if someone was in the ring and they go, it's Jim, good old JR, you turn a blind eye, Jim. You, you, you turn a blind eye, Ross, right? What we think at that point is, okay, well, he just got heat with the commentators, right? But prior to that, you really never saw anyone really point to the commentary, to the commentary table, right? And the crazy thing is, is I guess, you know, it's common knowledge that Mystic Man is the owner of the WWE. Yeah. But, like, at the time, I guess things didn't click. Even with the steroid scandal, where it's like, hey, why is Vince McMahon, why is Vince McMahon on the stand? You know, you don't, you're not really, you know, those things didn't really click, 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 click. Right? For the longest time, I thought Mr. McMahon or Vince McMahon was just a commentator. Right? And then it's just like later on, you start finding, okay, he's the owner. The McMahon family. Right? Mm-hmm. But it was never really, like, just thrown out there. Miss McMahon, owner of the WWE, you know? And it was like, Bret Hart here was breaking that fourth wall. He was the one that was kind of like, Vince, 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 you know? When Vince McMahon comes out at the end of the Montreal Screwjob, the Survivor Series, I mean, right? That pretty much was the icing on the cake. Yeah. And, 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 and look, all of these are interactions with Vince McMahon and Bret Hart, right? Not Stone Cold. Stone Cold briefly, right? Because Bret, you know, Stone Cold... Well, he had a few words with Stone Cold at the time, but but it was like promo that had nothing to do with Stone Cold. Exactly. You know, it was like, you know, Stone Cold was just giving it to the man, you know? Uh, But Bret Hart was the one that was actually giving it to Vince McMahon. But I also still believe at that time that Bret was actually frustrated with the company... Yes, he did take a hiatus, and it took some time off. He tried to go into acting, and it didn't pan out well. He he didn't come to realize that the wrestling industry was changing. It was just not good versus evil. He comes back, you know, he sees that Stone Cold is like a hot commodity at the time, and he's rising up very fast, and you see for the first time in my opinion, a heel being cheered on. I think Brett took offense to that. I'm like, listen, I, I'm I'm the good guy. I'm the face of this company. I was, you know, four times WF champion, and you're booing me? And you're cheering this guy? It was at a time that it was, like, acknowledging the fact that, hey, it's not you're supposed to cheer for the good guy and boo for the bad guy. It's like now the fans have that freedom to go which direction they want to go to. 
And the thing is, this is this was even before Bret Hart's full heel turn at WrestleMania 13. Correct. Because this was leading into the 13 match. Yes. Right? Because, and, and that was the thing. So it was like, because like Bret Hart had come, you know, he, he lost the Iron Man match, comes back, still a fan favorite, but then things start to turn a little, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it's like, all right, people are now cheering the bad guy, not the good guy. The traditional roles are now being switched. switched. They're reversed. Okay. Well, what's going on, right? That's what Brett's probably thinking. The industry was changing. You know, the industry had changed already in ECW prior. ECW was making their waves at that time, right? Where the anti-hero was being built up. You know, your Sandman, your RVD, your Sabus, you know, your Taz, mm-hmm. right? These were like anti-heroes, you know? Um, guys you shouldn't be cheering but you love to cheer because of the stuff that they were doing uh, you know so with this thing with Brett though I thought just the, the the best part of this was the beginning once Stone Cold into, interjected himself and god damn son you think everything's a conspiracy you know like that at that point is like alright alright this this now this, is, now this doesn't seem like a work anymore uh, now this doesn't seem I'm, I'm sorry like shoot now this seems like a work, right? Mm. Uh, but you know, the first time you see that shove, wow, that's groundbreaking. You know, Nick is shoving the owner of the company. Who had? I mean, look, I think Shawn Michaels and the Click probably made little off the cuff, like, and I think even the Macho Man sometimes too. They, they there was like off cuff remarks that they would make between certain altercations that that were going on, whether it was someone assaulting someone in the ring, whatever. or... Or them just joking and being playful that they would allude to Miss McMahon somehow, but you just never picked up on it. But again, if I was probably... Well, remember, we were younger. But yeah, that was the thing. But I was just going to say, I was just going to say that if we were older, like we, you know, like in, in our teens, later in our teens, uh, maybe early 20s, we would have caught on, all right, that's Miss McMahon is the owner. Like that's all, yeah. you know, he's not a fucking commentator. Like he runs this thing, you know? And, uh, you know, I thought that was an interesting thing because, you know, at first... You don't know that, but it's like, well, why is Brett doing that to Vince McMahon? You know, like, you know, and, you know, then and there he started, he started, you know, and that's why I always think there's, it, it, that's a very interesting period of time because I think Bret Hart was really the catalyst to the Mr. McMahon character, you know, like Bret Hart, I think is such an intro, like important and integral part to the Attitude Era. Even though he really wasn't there, he was pre attitude. He was pre attitude. Yeah, because they was they were promoting. They started promoting the attitude era while he was still under contract. So you take away the credit from Stone Cold a little bit, and you give the credit to Burhard that he was the one that acknowledged the fact that yes, this is the owner of the company, Vince Man, and this is the guy that makes the decisions around here. And does not pretend that that's not the fact. Point simple. Uh, any other thoughts on this one? I mean, obviously, then a, a melee, like person, you know, started Sid Taker Austin. Even Shawn Michaels came out. Who like you know? The other thing that I, I forgot to mention. Speaking of Shawn Michaels and the Undertaker, was there any Undertaker's like shoot? Right in quotes. He goes, 
Ah, did I lose my smile? He said that. I'll be honest, I didn't even catch that. You did. He said it. Um, All right, so we're done with the Bret Hart thing, and I think this was important. This Bret Hart one was, like, hugely important, I think, Um, at the time. What do you got? What do you have? One more on the list or something? I have one more. And All right, bro. And this one is actually a non-W shoot. It's actually a WCW shoot in um, 2000. It's a um, Bash of the Beach 2000 with a former WWE employee by the name of Vince Russo, which we all know was the uh, head creative uh, writer for WWE, the Attitude Era. And he left the company. He went to WCW, had full control of their creative. But at the same time, we had to play with politics in WCW. I don't know if you could remember this time I, in the business. I remember this time in the business. I especially remember the stuff with Vince Russo. Because I remember the Vince Russo stuff, me not really liking um, some things were fine, but other things you can see there is a Vince Russo, like, handprint on it, right? The Vince Russo stamp. This was an interesting time because, you know, WCW was, like, shifting towards, like, a new era, so to speak, right? You know, you went from Eric Bischoff to Vince Russo to, I think, just Eric Bischoff and then Vince Russo again, Right? And what was interesting about this was, you know, WCW, from everything you hear, you know, was notorious for wrestlers' egos, getting the best of everything and them basically running the show. Well, right? some wrestlers had a creative control. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I was going to touch on. So Vince, Vince Russo, bro, comes out here and he goes, Hulk Hogan, you son of a bitch, right? Basically... It was Jeff Jarrett versus Hulk Hogan for the WCW world title. And, you know, Vince Russo comes out, you know, talking about leaving here three weeks ago, you know, like leaving the company three weeks ago. Not sure if he'd be back. You know, he had been done. You know, there was nothing else, right, to do. You know, he had to deal with all the BS and the politics behind the curtain you know, but he thought about it, but he came back, and he came back for guys like Booker T, you know, uh, Jeff Jarrett, um, you know, some of the other factions, MIA, um, you know, so just to name a few, and he came back for those guys who were out there busting their ass every week, right? Every week. And prior to him coming out, Jeff Jarrett just jobbed to Hulk Hogan by just dropping himself to the ground, right? And Hogan pitting him and just Hulk Hogan being pissed. Like, what's the what's this bullshit, right? What is this shit? They went off script. Yeah. Uh, so basically, this was like Montreal Screwjob Light, right? It was like kind of, I guess, like a thing between Vince Russo and Jeff Jarrett. Just lay down there. Let him pin you if this is what he wants. Well, right? from from my understanding, you know, watching documentaries and listening to Eric Bischoff's side and Ben Russo's side, 
what had happened was earlier that day, Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff discussed with Hogan what was going to happen. Um, yes, Hogan was going to originally win the match, but um, not in that way that we saw. And I believe Hulk Hogan was putting his input in the match and trying to get, you know, his point across and make sure his side is, you know, his way, his vision was going to be the one coming on top. Uh, I think they both, they all agreed. Eric Bischoff left the building because he thought everything was nice and dandy. And then now... You have Vince Russo going into business with himself by telling Jeff Jarrett to lay down and have creative control Hogan win the belt because that's what he wanted. And Hogan was pissed. Um, again, this went off script. And we never got to see Hogan ever again at the WCW ring until... 2002? Yes. 2002 when he came back uh, to the WWE. So, you know, uh, essentially, you know, Vince Russo was just, like, kind of on the offensive, right? Like, you know. He was pissed. He was pissed that Hogan was playing his um, creative control card. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was the thing. I mean, look, WCW was going in a different direction. And in order for WCW to survive, like... They did. They they did need, like, new blood. You know, they had so much, like, talent, like the Booker T's, you know. And, and again, you know, Vince Russo did mention that, right? He goes to say, he goes on to say that, you know, Hulk Hogan was politicking all day. He called Hulk Hogan a politician, right, during this, during this thing. He goes, he was politicking all day, and he decided to use the creative control, as you mentioned, right? To win the belt. Uh, then Russo goes, I swear you'll never see Hulk Hogan in a WCW ring again. That was good. Yeah, try. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, he plays to the crowd basically and goes, you know, you guys all pay with your hard-earned money, and by God, you're gonna get a title match anyways. Right? And then he goes on to say Jeff Jarrett's still a champion, the rightful champion. He goes, Hulk Hogan's champion, but you know what? That belt he has doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything anymore. He goes, let's just call this the Hulk Hogan Memorial title, right? Like, he's like, you know what? You want that title? Keep it. But you know what? We're going we're gonna to have another title, and it's going to be a match between Jeff Jarrett and Booker T. Right? Now... He goes, leaves the ring and goes, Hulk Hogan, you big ball son of a bitch, kiss my ass. And he walks out, right? Now, I mean, look, the interesting part about that is... It was real. This, yeah, this one seems to be the only one on the list that might have been factual. I'm hesitant again, because I can't remember if they did introduce a new belt that night. It was the same belt. It was right. just a different Ver- version. version of the right. belt. It was, it, it was like a replica belt, pretty much. Okay. So, so, at this point, you know, yeah, you don't see Hulk Hogan again 
Eric Bischoff also quit that night. And the lawsuit that Hogan had, what was that exactly? I, I, I always forget the exact details. From my understanding, I know when Hogan signed with WCW and then re-signed, it was a clause in his contract stating that regardless of the fact of any storyline or any input from management, that he would have the final say on his creative character, on the outcome of matches concerning himself, well, his character, Hulk Hogan. So he was playing that card, in this case, with Jeff Jarrett. Because, again, Vince Russo wanted to go with the, you know, with the route that let's have Jeff Jarrett beat a Hulk Hogan because this is the direction we're going in. We're going younger, new faces, not the same champion over and over again. Mind you, he was stepping away from what the old WCW was doing. And Hogan didn't want to play that card. Hogan wanted to play, it's all about me. I have full control and I'm going to play my full control card. And the outcome is going to be I win the belt regardless of what you want or what you may not want. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is that WCW this time was kind of like falling apart at the scene. So, I think it just adds another level of reality to this particular uh, shoot, you know, slash pipe bomb from Vince Russo. So, you know, to me, of all of them, this one seemed to be the most legit, you know? Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, bro. So, I mean, this this was interesting. Look, there are a lot more... Again, we're not saying these are the best. We're just saying these are some ones that stuck, stood out to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was fun and interesting to go back and, like, revisit, revisit some of these. Because, to me, wrestling's at its best when the lines of reality blur a little. Right? When, you know, Hope, when, when Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth are really married in real life... And Hulk Hogan comes out of nowhere. And uh, Macho Man sees lust in his eyes. Dig it. You know, like, those kind of things are impactful. Because there is some truth to things, you know, sometimes. And I think that's when things work best. Whether it's Daniel Bryan and The Miz having real heat. Mm-hmm. Or had real, real heat. You know, um... You know, CM Punk, you know, uh, with a pipe bomb, the infamous pipe bomb. Dolph Ziggler expressing where he was at at the time in the industry. Frustration. The Undertaker really laying out what was true of about him up to that point. And even afterwards, you know, he did get to, he did always have to fight all the freaks, right? The Great Khalis, the Giant Gonzalez's, the Kamala's. You know, uh, who who was that? Um, Mordecai, right? Like you know, Tom Mustafa. You know, the fake Undertaker. The fake, you know, their characters created. Yeah, he, he made a point when he did mention that. He made a point that if you think about it, if you have like a giant Gonzalez against a Bret Hart or Hulk Hogan, like none of that ever happened. You can't see it happen because you you would know straight to the bat that 
a Jack Gonzalez would defeat a Hulk yeah. Hogan. Or a Bret Hart. Exactly. Especially Bret Hart. You know, unless they found a way. But, you know, I guess The Undertaker was the one, you know, who... Slaying the dragons. Yeah, you know, things were either created for him or the creations that were made he was put up to face against. You know, so I think there is a lot of truth and validity to that. But, um... But, you know, I don't know. Is that, I think that, that covers them all. It does. It yeah. does. All right. Well, this was a pleasure. Uh, Zuj, you know, this was, uh, this was, this, this was really fun. You know, it, it's always nice to, to go have back. to go back and you kind of relive things and then you get to see things with a new set of eyes, you know, as older, more mature. It makes more sense. You know, fans of this, uh, you know, industry, yeah, it does make more sense, you know? Um, but before we sign off, I have a question for you. If there is a movie, uh, let's, let's call it, uh, Avengers Endgame. Okay. Right? And, you know, you really want to watch the movie, tickets are sold out all weekend, and, you know, you have nothing to do, but, you know, you really want to just go by yourself and just catch the movie. And the only seats available to you are, like, a handicap seat that says, hey, if someone of special needs does come along that actually needs a seat, you're going to have to vacate. Okay. Right? Ten minutes into the movie, you know, you think the coast is clear. And finally, someone like a little wheelchair starts coming by or maybe in, in a walker or something like that, right? And uh, they go, excuse me, sir, are you handicapped? Uh, I believe this seat's reserved for me. What do you do? Do you stay there or do you give your seat up? Yeah. Knowing myself, I will have to give the seat up. Hmm. You're a good man, Estorina. You're a good man. Knowing me, I would probably do a little something like I'm sorry. There's a seat for you. I thought seat for me. I would then proceed to then I kind of cross my legs together, bend them, slowly wake up, you know, and get up out of my chair with like a little so you wiggle, would sell it. and then do like little raptor arms. Yeah, it's just just a question, just a little conversation I had with some people earlier today, which, you know, apparently, you know. <laughs> Apparently, three out of the four people I've encountered today said they would. But me? You know, I suppose I'd have to watch Endgame this way. Well, you did pay to watch it. Yeah, yeah. that's the point. Anyways. Um, <laughs> well, again, uh, so this was a fun conversation to talk about. And up until next time, you know, we'll, we'll hope to have some spicy topics. And uh, some more flavorable topics, right? Uh, but until next time, Ravishing Rick. And the Cerebral Analyst, The Ness. Signing out. Good night. And peace out.